The Gospel According to Luke. Uh, So Luke is one of the three synoptic Gospels, which means that there's four Gospels. John is quite different than the others. John wrote his way later, and he, I think, wanted to, since he was there for all of these things, he wanted to write down the, the stuff that had not been captured. My guess would be Luke hap- is after Mark and Matthew. I think Mark was surely first. Matthew, we don't know, but Matthew went the angle of really focusing on um, Jesus fulfilling the scriptures, the prophecies of the Old Testament and the law uh, to the Jewish reader. Luke focuses more on making it clear to everyone that everyone is invited into the kingdom of God. And he's very meticulous on detail. So he captures a lot of detail. He wrote Luke and Acts. And I've always heard that if, you know, it's by by the number of words, he wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. It's only two books, but they're, they're very long books. And so when it comes to Luke, he captures a lot of stories that are not captured in any of the other Gospels. So that makes it really cool. He just, he picks up on a lot of things we wouldn't know about if he didn't write them down. And that was his thing. He was not there. He was not one of the original disciples. But he uh, he worked, we know he worked with Paul a lot. We know he hung out with Peter from other books. Um, and it appears he's just very inquisitive. And my guess is he also hung out with uh, all the other original disciples that he could. Um, and he basically starts it out by saying that, that he was just hungry to gather as much detailed information as he could and to write it all down so that we all have it as you know time has passed. You know, one thing he may have realized better than those who were with Jesus is, hey, we don't, <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't there. Many people weren't there. So we got to write this down if we want to capture this information. So I'm certainly not going to read most of this book. Uh, we'll just talk about it. We've, we've just finished up the Old Testament recently, and some of those books are really short. So I read large portions of them, if not all of them. Um, that won't be the case here. But just to begin, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most Theophilus. Sorry, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So Theophilus, many people think he was, uh, that he was helping fund Luke's journeys. And then so, you know, Luke wrote him these, these nice explanations of things. Uh, Theophilus obviously is a believer. He's been taught this gospel. Um, but Luke is sharing detail after having, uh, discussed and uh, interviewed many of the eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And then after that intro, he, he jumps in in verse 5, and he starts telling us about Zacharias and Elizabeth. And I believe this is the only time we hear this story. There's, so there's just a lot of stories in Luke that we only get in Luke. 
And the, our timing couldn't be better because we just finished Malachi, which very specifically foretold the coming of John the Baptist, and that's where Luke starts out his story. And he tells us this, that Herod is king. They're in, uh, well, Herod was king of Judea. Uh, Zacharias is a priest, and his wife, Elizabeth is also a priest from the she's a daughter of Aaron. So they both come from the Aaronic priesthood. They're not just Levites, they are priests uh under, you know, the family of Aaron, Moses's brother. So that's important. This this you know, God tied all these things up perfectly and beautifully um so that every every bit of the law was answered through Jesus. So John comes as a priest in the you know the family of Aaron and according to the law of Moses he's he's a priest he's eligible to be the you know to serve in the holy of holies but more than that we see in verse 6 both parents Zacharias and Elizabeth are righteous in the sight of God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord but they had no child Elizabeth was barren and this would have been very uh, embarrassing, and it would have been seen as a curse by many people back in those days. So even though they were righteous in heart, they 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 didn't see what the nor- most people would expect, what the religious mind would expect, would be the the blessings that should follow righteous living. So Zacharias, you know, is performing his duties as a priest, and and they would what you know he he's out. He's not a Jerusalem priest. He's way out in the boonies, and he gets chosen by lot. But they they would go around all the different families of of you know the family of Aaron and have different chances to serve in the temple. And so he was chosen by lot. That's like rolling dice to come enter the temple and burn incense before the Lord. So this is a huge honor for him probably the only time in his life he got to go do this and so you see he goes to do it there's people outside all praying at the hour that he's burning the incense and an angel of the lord appears to him standing right to the right of the altar and zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel fear gripped him and the angel said do not be afraid zacharias for your petition has been heard and your wife elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name john you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So, the angel has promised him a, uh, you know, a child, a son, even in his old age. And it's very clearly, he's basically quoting from Malachi. It's fortunate for us, we just read this, so when we see things like to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, that's how Malachi ends, Right? The, the, the last prophet to come, which had been 400 years, had talked about this person that is to come. Zechariah would have known this very well. 
And here this angel is telling him that this is who his son is to be. It's pretty incredible. That he's going to, and the disobedient to the attitude of righteousness, that he's going to turn people around from going their own way, the way of the world, to instead going the way of the Lord. And then Zechariah has a tough time getting out of his, you know, his own flesh, his own understanding of how life works and, and having faith. He has the temerity to ask, how will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So a little bit of a reprimand here. Um, he's, God's still going to do what he's going to do. <laughs> but he says, you, you didn't have faith in me, so your sign is you're not going to be able to speak for the next nine months. So, Zechariah comes out of the temple. The people are all won wondering, what is going on? Why is it taking him so long? And then he can't speak, and he's making signs with his hands, and they realize he's seen a vision. And then when his service is over, they head back home. And so then Elizabeth became pregnant and she stayed in seclusion for five months saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So it's interesting. She didn't, you know, she didn't go around bragging that she was pregnant, but she just stayed in seclusion, stayed, kept it between them and the Lord for five months until it became obvious that she was pregnant. Then the story moves to Nazareth, where again the angel Gabriel is sent, uh, well he's sent to Nazareth this time, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And so she, the angel says to her, greetings favored one, the Lord is with you. And she's perplexed at this statement, it's a strange way to greet somebody. So she's kind of pondering what kind of situation this is. And the angel says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child should be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed. So this is pretty incredible for this young girl, right? She, people got married young back then. So she was probably like 14, 15. Um, and here an angel shows up to her. <laughs> you know, she's feeling like a little nobody out in the hinterlands. And now an angel shows up, starts speaking in strange ways to her. Um, you know, she's of the family of David, but but there's at that point, David was a long time ago, so there's a lot of people. That doesn't mark them out as special in any way. She feels like a pretty ordinary person. And all of a sudden, the angel's saying, you're going to have the Messiah born out of you. That's 
pretty incredible. And she says, wait a minute, I know how this works, and um, that seems impossible. And the angel explains, God will do it. And, and then he gives her a nice sign and says, look, your relative, we always say cousin, my NASB just says relative, uh, Elizabeth, well, and it probably says cousin somewhere else, I'm not sure. Um, well, you know, she's already pregnant and, you know, she's old, so nothing's impossible with God. And then she does something marvelous. I mean, this is an amazing thing that's happening to her. A little teenager and out of nowhere. And she says, Behold, I'm the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. So she, you know, I mean, as we're going to see, this is a traumatic... <laughs> she probably hadn't even had time to process what all this means. But this is going to be incredibly traumatic. This is going to turn her life upside down. She knows she's engaged to be married. Surely she knows... Her future husband is not going to like this. Um, and that everyone else is going to think this is, you know, that she's done been up to no good. And yet she submits her life to the Lord. That is powerful. And it shows us why the Lord would have chosen her. That she was someone in extraordinarily difficult circumstances would fully submit to the Lord whatever may come. So Mary decides to go visit Elizabeth. She wants to see this for herself. So she enters Zechariah's and Elizabeth's house. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, the future John, leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out in a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. So this is really powerful. Elizabeth is much older, much, much older than Mary. And if anything, Mary should be deferential to Elizabeth, right? I mean, even in today's culture, that's, that's how it typically is with most families. But especially back then, uh, Mary should be the one deferential to Elizabeth. But God shows us right away how he's turning everything upside down. He's turning over the fallen order of, of mankind, of Adam, and re, redoing the whole world through Jesus, through his son and his new kingdom. And so Elizabeth says, the spirit comes over her. She says, blessed are you. She starts prophesying that the Lord has entered her house through this womb and, and that Mary herself is blessed for having submitted her life to the Lord. I was just struck by parallels. Uh, we talked a lot about Revelation 12 and obviously that's a picture of this, right? Mary has the child um, that's clearly in Revelation 12. The woman has the man-child and then, but a couple of things struck me as uh, parallels I'd never thought of before. Um, one, after the man-child uh, ascends, the devil turns his attention back to the woman and uh, goes through great difficulty. And so that's 
you know, we, we obviously Mary went through great difficulty, the, the people went through great difficulty, but then what happens? There's many new children that come out and it just, I was just thinking, about, obviously there's many people that come out, but specifically out of Mary, her, her sons um, before this, but before Jesus's resurrection, just, I guess, thought their brother was crazy. I, I don't know. They didn't believe early on. And, but then after he was resurrected, he, he appeared to at least James and maybe all of them. And we know James and Jude become leaders in the church. And so that, that shows the raising up. So God is always doing things in greater and greater. He's always progressively getting larger and larger in the fulfillment of his plans. And so Jesus is the door. He's the way. But he's also a picture of greater things to come. So some people get really lazy with Revelation 12 and think that it's talking about Jesus in the flesh 2,000 years ago, which is kind of silly because Revelation was written way after that. And was a prophecy of what's to come but in Jesus whole life is a prophecy of what's to come <laughs> and so uh we can see in all the ways he fulfilled things that were said before and he fulfills what's to come he's he's the cross the intersection of all time and space so then after Elizabeth makes this nice uh prophecy to Mary Mary uh has an answer and she talks about how blessed she is, which is great because, again, she's about to go through some really difficult times. But God doesn't leave her alone. He gives her these things to help her to realize he is with her and she is blessed. And so she's just overwhelmed with the fact that she is blessed and that he is a mighty one. Holy is his name. His mercy is upon generation after generation. He, he has done mighty deeds with his arm. And then he, she goes on, not just thinking about herself, but talking about what God is up to in the world. He's scattered those who are proud in heart. He's brought down rulers from their thrones. So again, what we were just talking about, um, Jesus upends the whole order of the, of the created reality, which is not just the earth, but the heavens. And so we see rulers coming down from thrones exalted those who are humble. So we see rulers coming down, humble, exalted up. He's filled the hungry with good things. He's sent away the rich empty-handed. So he's he loves everyone. He's Those who are about themselves, he's letting them go on their way about themselves. But, but those who are in need for God, he's lifting up. He's given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. So God has his people. He always has. He always saves a remnant to Abraham and his descendants forever. So it's, it's pretty powerful if you break it down and look at it like that. Uh, it starts just with herself and realizing she's blessed, but then it goes to the mighty purposes of God. And then Mary stays with her for three months and then goes home. Now Elizabeth was going to give birth, and she did, gave birth to a son. And on the eighth day, which was the you know, the law of Moses says on the eighth day you circumcise a child. And they are wanting to name the child after her, his father, Zacharias. It's kind of a weird culture that they would think that they have the right to do that. But apparently they did. 
And his mother says, no, his name will be called John. And they say, there's no one in your family named John. You can't name him some strange name that you don't already have in your family. And so they they made signs to his father. I don't know why they had to make signs to him. He's the one that can't talk. Anyways, they, he asks for a tablet and he writes down his name is John. And so they're all shocked because, you know, John's this godly priest and he, he knows people are named after their own families. And here he says, yeah, we're naming him John. And once he does that, his mouth is open, his tongue is loosed, and he began to speak in praise of God. And so then fear came on all the people around and everyone's discussing this and all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept them in mind saying, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. So everyone sees clearly God is doing something here. We don't know what, he's just a baby, but clearly God's hand is in his life. And so then Zacharias is filled with the Holy Spirit and he begins to prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And he goes on to say, God has granted salvation uh, as he's spoken of from the prophets of old, from the hand of those who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, his oath he swore to Abraham. To grant us that we be rescued from our enemies and serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness from all our days. It's a powerful desire. It's, I mean, obviously the Holy Spirit is speaking through him, but it's, it's just a, a powerful, simple desire that they, that we be a people of God. It's really as simple as that. And you, child, now he begins to speak to his son, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the, val- the way of peace, And the child continued to grow and become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So Zechariah understands from the angel, from the Lord, very clearly that his son is going to prepare the way. That they have a knowledge that there is salvation, that there is a need to get forgiveness from their sins. That God is merciful if they but seek him. And that a light will come and guide the way to the people out of the shadow of death. And then John, from there, we just see he kind of disappears. He goes out, hangs out in the deserts for, you know, a couple decades. And, I mean, decade and a half, whatever it was. I don't know when he's old enough to leave his family. But he goes and hangs out in the desert and just being taught by the Lord, prepared by the Lord. And then, so he's not out trying to be famous. You know, I mean, surely he heard these stories from his parents, right? But he's not out trying to build a ministry. He goes out to get to know the Lord. And he's just obeying the Lord by being secreted away in the wilderness. And then we're on to chapter 2. So Augustus is Caesar in Rome. And he decides he wants a census taken of the entire Roman Empire. And so everyone has to return to his home city. So Joseph is of the family of David, so he has to go back to Bethlehem. And so he takes Mary, who is engaged to him, 
and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. So she gives birth to a son, wrapped him in cloth, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You've probably heard the story. So God does something amazing here, something that the religious mind could never grab hold of. We're used to it because we've all grown up with this story, so of course that's how it happened. But if if this had, if you'd never heard this before and this got told you, you think there's no way that the God who created everything would have His only begotten Son born into some no-name couple out in the middle of nowhere, in not even in a home, but in an animal trough. Um, th- that that is preposterous. But that is exactly what God did. God used the lowest of the low to bring us, which is what we all are, right? We like to think of ourselves, pride creeps in everywhere, and we think of ourselves as sophisticated or important. But the reality is we're fallen and we're far from God. And so, but he wants to bring us back into his family. And so he shows that the Messiah that saves us all is born in the lowliest of places. And then who are the first people to visit? Shepherds, which is, again, it's kind of ironic. These people are from the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did they do for a living? They were shepherds. Remember when the people went to Egypt? They were shepherds, all of them. And yet the people had grown to look down on shepherds. And shepherds were kind of considered dirty, maybe a little crazy because they spent all their time out alone with sheep. And so they are kind of the downcast of society. But they are the ones that God first makes aware that, hey, the Messiah is here. And so the angel of the Lord appears before them, or an angel of the Lord, and the glory of the Lord is shown around them, and they were frightened. But the angel says, don't be afraid. Behold, I give you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then all of a sudden there's a with angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. It's interesting, I never picked up on this before, but um, when Jesus has his uh, baptism, which I think is probably next chapter, and then also when he has the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Well, we have a similar comment here, but he says it for all mankind, that, which is a picture, that, that we are invited into the same life of Jesus, that to be a son, um, that he is pleased with us and he has made a way for us. Now, obviously, we have to differentiate. He's not pleased with the fallen nature. That's why he sent Jesus to be a way out of it. But he's pleased with us for the who he made us to be, for the potential to be his family, his living sons. So then the angels leave and the shepherds are like, hey, we got to go see, we got to go see this Messiah. So they head down to Bethlehem and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the babies in the manger, as the angel said, and they saw this and they told them, hey, this is what the angel said to us.
And I guess they're, in your opinion, probably not being quiet about it. So it's a crowded town. And so other people are hearing about this and they're all kind of amazed. And Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And then the shepherds go back, they're glorifying and praising God. And, you know, it's, it's quite a quite a stir here for this little baby. And then eight days pass, so they go to circumcise him. They call him Jesus. As you're probably picking up, it was a tradition. I think it's, I don't know if they wait. I think Jews today don't tell you, you know, maybe not all of them, but this tradition, they don't tell you the name of the baby until they're born, I think, today. In this day, they, they did not tell you the name of the baby until the circumcision. So eight days, the baby lived. Maybe the parents knew the, the name, but it wasn't known what the name was until the circumcision. And so they did everything according to the law. You'll see that. They, you know, they abided by the law of Moses. And so there was a time of purification for the baby and the mother. And then after that, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as the scripture requires. And, and then it quotes the scripture of Moses. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so they go and do that. But then when they get to Jerusalem, there's a man named Simeon. He was righteous and devout. And he's looking for the consolation of Israel. So he's concerned about the way of the people and seeking the Lord. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Messiah. So he's waiting. He he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child of Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took into his arms. And so, sorry, it's, it's wonky the way I'm reading it. But uh, the Spirit comes on him. So he enters the temple. He sees the baby and he you know, takes him, picks him up, and begins to bless him. He says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. Who knows how many years this guy had been waiting, but the Lord had promised him that he would get to see the Messiah. So he says, Now you're releasing me, basically according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people is Israel. So right away, he's seeing, you know, this is, a, this is a Jew, right? But he's already speaking about Jesus, the Messiah, being a light to all the people of the world, as many prophets before had already spoken. And so then Joseph and Mary are amazed at these things. You know, <laughs> the world is turned upside down. Strangers are coming and prophesying about their son. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So this is a really powerful word. Um, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many. So he's going to flip everything upside down. Those who are proud in their religious standing are going to come down. Those who are very humble in where they are, who seek him, will be risen up. And 
And he even points to the fact that, hey, you've got this son and you're full of joy right now, but a sword's even going to pierce your own soul. Uh, Of course, yeah, being Jesus' mother was not an easy thing. And to the end, that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So the sword is piercing to lay bare what is in the heart of each and every person that ever existed. And then if that wasn't enough, a prophetess, Anna, comes. She's of the tribe of Asher. You don't hear about the tribe of Asher so much, but she was. And she was very old also and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. So again, if she was married, let's say 15, he died at 22. And then she'd she'd been a widow all the way till age 84. And she never left the temple. She stayed there day and night fasting and praying. At that moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak to him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So you've got these two witnesses bearing witness when they enter the the temple that Jesus is Messiah. This is an important thing in the law, that there be two witnesses. And so God was just immaculate in the way Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. And so you can look at these people as um, f- as representing the law and the prophets. You can look at them as as actually fulfilling the law, as being uh, the the witnesses. But here, Jesus, at the time of his being brought into the temple of God, is declared the Messiah, even as a baby. Now he hadn't completed all that yet. He still has to do it, but. He, that is what he's called to do if he is willing. And so then the parents returned to Nazareth and the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. So he's growing up like any other boy, but growing in strength and wisdom and the grace of the Lord was with him. And then his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. So you're supposed to go up to Jerusalem every year for this. And they were good Jews. And so they were doing just that. So they spent the time there, the the full uh, feast week that they were supposed to spend. And then they came home. And, you know, it's strange that this would happen. (laughs) Seems very odd, but somehow it happened that they come back and Jesus is not with them. His parents were unaware of it. So probably it was a huge crowd of people all coming from Nazareth. And they had many like cousins and other family members. And and so I guess the kids would be playing with other kids. And they would just assume he's with us. But he wasn't with us. And so, you know, after they went a day's journey, they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And they did not find him. So they returned to Jerusalem, and after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. So what is Jesus doing? He's listening and asking them questions. A huge pet peeve of mine is when they make 12-year-old Jesus the teacher of everybody. Jesus wasn't the teacher of everybody at 12. He was 12. So what is he doing? He's listening and asking them questions. He's learning. He's entering into the Father's business, as we're about to see. So, well, let me, let me kind of get to the end, and then I'll come back. 
And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So for a 12-year-old, he had amazing understanding. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? She's feeling, you know, she's like, well, You're my son. You're supposed to be obeying me and doing what's right, not going off, leaving us. Behold, your father and I have been very anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Jesus says, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature. See, he didn't have all the wisdom and stature at 12. He kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So... Jewish tradition, or Jewish, you know, the way the culture was, was at the age of 12, you would enter your father's business, and you'd begin apprenticing for your father to teach you his business. At the age of 30, you were old enough to take over the business, and then your father would go around and introduce you to all the people he did business with, and say, this is my son, I'm, I'm very proud of him, and you can, whatever he says, you can do it. it. You know, he represents me in all matters of the business and the family. His word is as good as mine. So there are these two transition in, in the life of a man. And this is, so we know later we'll get to it. Jesus's ministry was at age 30, right? So that's when he begins to fully represent the father. At age 12, he did not fully represent the father. That's a religious thinking that when we when we allow these kind of religious ideas to infiltrate our heart and our mind, it breaks the reality of God and his plan for us off of us. So it makes it impossible. It, it lifts Jesus up as some unassailable God that's impossible for us to encounter or to follow after, as he said. And it makes us this low sinner that's just stuck in the mud. Well, that's not at all what the gospel is. The gospel is that he is our way. He is our truth. He is our life. That we are to pick up our cross and follow him into this life that he has made a way for us. And so what we see for him is when he's 12, he entered into his father's business so that he could be taught, discipled, um, apprenticed in the way of his father, who is God. <laughs> and so he's going to learn the way of God, the way of the king, uh, so that he could be, you know, the high priest. He's, he's got to learn all this. And so we see him enter into that way, enter into that discipleship. He's going to spend 18 years being discipled by the Lord before he is ready to represent the Lord. This is very powerful. When Paul says, hey, you don't make a new believer a leader in the church. It's because there has to be a discipleship process where we are con converted from the way of fallen man into the way of God. That we are transformed from a carnal creature into a holy spiritual creation. And so... This process must happen, and this process did happen with Jesus, and we see it all right here. And I think that's going to be it for today. 
God bless you.